Ryan Disick is an associate marriage and family therapist with an MA in clinical psychology. He is also founding drummer of the wildly successful band Maroon 5. Ryan recently published his memoir, Harder to Breathe, which chronicles his struggles with anxiety and alcoholism, his band's rise to success, and the devastating loss of his ability to play drums due to nerve damage. Today, Ryan is in recovery, and we are thrilled to share his experience, strength, and hope on sober sex. Creativity, authenticity, body autonomy, mental health, sexuality, gender identity, recovery, recovery, got it, mental growth, sober sex. I'm good, thank you. A little uh, flustered. My mouse wasn't working like five minutes before we jumped on, and I was like trying to figure out, do I have another mouse? <laughs> You're like, oh no, the like New Year techno, like uh, what is it like techno technological hurricane? <laughs> yeah, it was just all at once. First first day of the New Year. <laughs> Congratulations, it's all happening. Well, we managed to make it here, so that's good news. Um, and and where are you? I'm in Los Angeles, California, in the San Fernando Valley. Oh, fantastic. In a room with like 9,000 snares. <laughs> yeah, this is, you know, all of the, the musical gear that I've collected over my 45 years of life. <laughs> Man, well, it, it, looks like a, it looks like a paradise. So awesome. Um, and like before we get too deep, we like to ask guests like not only their pronouns, but also their experience of gender, which can be a little bit like... I don't know. That's a it's a pretty intense first couple minutes of a podcast question, but um, especially I think for like cis people who don't necessarily uh, get asked that much. Um, so, what are your pronouns, and what's your experience of gender today? Uh, my pronouns are he, him, his. Um, my experience of gender, uh, you know, I, I I feel like I'm a man and I'm a male. Um, however, I've always had uh, a lot of qualities that I associate more with feminine qualities. Um, I feel comfortable with my feminine side, I guess is the way to say it, uh, and a balance between the feminine and the masculine in a way that at a younger age, I perhaps maybe felt a little bit out of step with um, guys who fit into the more traditional mode of what we considered masculinity. Um, now I just have an attitude that maybe we should broaden the definition of what a man or masculinity is to include more of the feminine. Yeah, that's a really beautiful like take, I think. And I also, I mean, she, her, hers. And I, I don't know, I think it's it's really refreshing to kind of hear different reflections on that because I do feel like even asking the question is like trying to make some space out of even like performative curiosity around it or like just trying to be like appropriately woke and like actually imploring us to to think about what our experience might be. So thank you for your for your uh, introspection on that. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, and so you recently published your memoir, Harder to Breathe, and like this is no no doubt part of like kind of a press 
a press tour of sorts. How's that been going? Like, how's that feel? It's been really interesting because I stepped out of the public space in 2006 when I left the band and really didn't make any attempts to step back into it for a long time. Um, and of course, putting out a book and, and wanting to, uh, it to find its audience, uh, I was prepared to do you know whatever I, I needed to do to promote and to talk about it because I, I believe in its message and I wanted to get it in people's hands. Um, but it's, uh, it's interesting. It's interesting to step back into that space a little bit, even though it's on a much smaller scale. Um, just to be thinking in those terms, in terms of public uh, discourse. Yeah, I'm sure. And I mean, also kind of, it's it seems like, you know, I think I, like as, as a fellow artist, this idea of being like kind of trying to be a good guardian of your work and putting it in the in the best places for it to kind of, the message to reach who it needs to reach and for it to exceed, succeed in a way that like it's it's supposed to exist. Um, I don't know, does it feel different this time? Like, how does that kind of compare to, to rock stardom? Oh, yeah, it's definitely different uh, for a lot of reasons. One, you know, we were very proud of the music that we made. Um, it was a collective. You know, there were five of us, four of us, and then five of us in the band. Um, and then you have your, your producer and your uh, manager and your record label and all these different, uh, you know, cooks in the kitchen. So The to village speak. that it takes. <laughs> right. <laughs> So putting that out into the world and it being an expression of all of our voices and, you know, probably most prominently the songwriters and Adam in particular being the lyricist and the singer. Um, I was very proud of the collective, um, you know, product that we had created at the time, artistically speaking. Um, but it wasn't as personal as writing a book about my story um, and, you know, basically doing the thing, the, the whole thing start to finish myself with the help of some editors and other people who gave me a lot of good feedback and aid. But essentially it came down to me writing a book, you know, and uh, and it being uh, hopefully 100 percent true to what where I am in my life and what I want to say. And then it has the added element of it's it's a bit of a mission for me to share some of the things I've learned in my journey in an attempt to be helpful to people that might be going through some of the same things. So it just has different layers to it. It's much more personal and it, and it feels uh, even more purposeful if that's possible than what we did, you know, 20 years ago. No, that's really beautiful. And really like, I, I, I see the kind of like intersection of like vulnerability and like being of service as the, this being like the process, like, on release day, how did it feel? <laughs> like, I, cause I know I, I put out a record last year and I felt, I didn't anticipate feeling so much grief cause mm -hmm. it was my first kind of LP. And I was just like, damn, like it was so weird to have all this, th you know, and it's, it's such a different thing than like a single or an EP or the kind of smaller, more like, I don't know, um, like a smaller punchy body of work that as opposed to like kind of a full, like a novel or an album. And um, I was surprised at kind of how, empty I felt after mm -hmm. like oh no like this is for this is for everybody now like I wonder what kind of came up for you emotionally uh, with the release that's really interesting I was actually just having this conversation with my my sister-in-law because um, she's put out a couple books and um, she was describing how there's so much lead up to the publication date that there's an inevitable sort of letdown and almost depression that happens after you release it because it's been your baby. It's just been yeah. sort of, 
Yeah, so it's like a postpartum depression experience when you put something out into the world that you've been working on yourself for so long. You know, for me, I, I, I can relate to that. I've been so busy that I haven't really had a chance to like let down really so much. Um, and also to me, it just for this project, it's kind of just the next logical step for me in a long line of things I've been doing for the last five, six years since I got sober in 2016. Um, and it's been sort of like one foot in front of the other each day doing the next indicated action, which has led me to this moment, which feels very purposeful in the same way that speaking in groups felt purposeful, volunteering at a recovery center felt purposeful, uh, going back to school and becoming a therapist and, and then starting to work with clients. So it, it just feels like the next step in that journey. Yeah. Like a that, process based thing. <laughs> right. Right. So I'm in the middle of it still, you know, it's like, I don't know where this book will go. I don't know where else my career might take me at this point, but this is just the moment that I'm in, in the process. That sounds fantastic. Actually. I'm really like early into actionable steps, <laughs> which I think is kind of a theme in recovery. Um, yeah. And so to, to rewind a little bit, like as the show is called sober sex, we're in a, inevitably talk about kind of sex and sexuality in addition to sobriety. And um, one of the kind of anchor questions, and just because I think part of the reason that we started the show, and I, I use the Royal Week because there used to be two other hosts, and now it's just me. Okay. Um, but the part of the reason we started the show is that a lot of people felt like there was, because especially in like mixed groups, there's not a lot of room for that kind of discourse, because I think it like would make a lot of people pretty uncomfortable, but especially alongside you know, like recovering from addiction or alcoholism, there's comes all of these questions because a lot of us never experienced like sex sober, you know, and and <laughs> it's just baffling because like it's very easy to pathologize, but then, you know, like, and also the fact that sex is one of those things not unlike food or gambling or exercise or working or spending money, like can really kind of take on a life of its own. So I wanted to kind of have these discussions that are really open and, ideally very safe, um, to talk about like, what, what does normal and healthy look like? Uh, and how do we arrive at that point often from a history of addiction or drug abuse and, and often some trauma. So, um, <laughs> I wonder what the first messages you received, uh, around sex and sexuality were when you were, when you were growing up or like what you kind of remember, how you remember kind of getting information about that. I think I was relatively lucky in my house and my family that sex was not, you know, a shameful thing. It wasn't something that was, uh, we, we didn't talk about it a lot overtly growing up when, before I was, you know, an adolescent or anything like that. But I remember my, my parents were, were very protective in other ways. They, they didn't want me to watch violent movies. And um, in some ways I was protected from things that might be harmful to me. Um, Sex was not one of those things. They didn't treat it as something to be protected from or something that was shameful, really. So I, I feel fortunate that, that I didn't have that relationship with sex at an early age. Um, I guess my first images of what sexuality was, I will say that, I, you know, there was definitely the message that, you know, straight sex, heterosexual sex, um, you know, more or less sex was something that was between a man and a woman, um, you know, in a healthy, loving, committed relationship. That was kind of the image, the old fashioned image of what uh, sex was when I was a kid. And then along the way, you know, as you grow up, I got exposed to other things in different areas. You know, I had friends and an older brother who had magazines and things. And that changes when you start getting different images like that. 
uh, your relationship to what yeah. sex is. You're like, separate. how do I align these two <laughs> concepts? <laughs> exactly. And so where are you in the kind of like the birth order? Like you say you have an older brother. Do you have other siblings? Yeah, I'm, I'm just the one uh, older brother. He's three and a half years older than me. Okay, so that's cool. There's like a person. I'm an only child, so it's just like, where are we getting this information from? Right, it's right. Funny, like a lot of people mentioned like Madonna or Prince, like kind of cultural messages around it, which is also interesting because you're like, especially I think growing up in like the 80s or like late 70s, this idea of kind of what, what how how do we age into the culture surrounding like notions at the time of, of sex and sexuality, right? Yeah, that was, a, I mean, it was an interesting time to be growing up in the 80s for me. Um, I was born in 77, so I was like, I don't know, five or six years old when MTV came out. And yeah, you hit the nail on the head, you know, had David Bowie and Prince and, um, you know, all these different images of androgyny, which maybe didn't exist before Bowie. Um, and then, you know, the, the female sexual ideal, which was more overt, perhaps at that point with the Madonnas and uh, other images. I remember actually the first image I had of what a beautiful woman was. I remember very distinctly the movie Vacation came out. And I remember my dad nudging me at, when Christy Brinkley came on screen and like, wow, she's really pretty, isn't she? Or whatever he said. And, <laughs> dad. and I was like, <laughs> So that, I think that had a pretty big impact on me of what I find attractive was that was kind of the, the sexual ideal of, of uh, you know, the, the whatever she represented in, in that movie and in the zeitgeist at that moment. <laughs> That's really funny. Actually, it's like so iconic. You're like, Christy mm. Brinkley, this is it. Um, <laughs> and, and so kind of how did it unfold from there? Like, I'm kind of assuming that like as you're, there was a lot of things happening in your life alongside your kind of like maturing process like growing into an adolescent and like becoming a rock star <laughs> like I'm assuming that that was not necessarily easy for the kind of concepts around like I don't know sex and sexuality and like what what this looked like moving forward like I know that for me when I kind of I, I felt kind of like very protected and like good girl kind of closeted growing up and then I discovered drugs and I was like this is awesome like but it was such a very different um image that I of what I knew myself to be and like what I knew myself to like that it was very kind of disconcerting it was hard to reconcile the two you know mm -hmm. I was relatively late to the game in terms of drugs and alcohol um I, my family was pretty conservative in terms of uh again just the traditional like you're expected to grow up um go to college have a nice career get married and have kids it was very um family oriented and, and positive. Uh, and the, the messages I got about alcohol and drugs were all drugs were bad. Everyone who does, does drugs are bad people. And drinking to the, to excess was, you know, bad. Um, so I was terrified of drugs and alcohol. And I, I looked down my nose at it when my peers were starting to do that and experiment in my teen years. Uh, my rebellion was music, of course. <laughs> I started a band and I wanted to rock out. I was, you know, very much obsessed with uh, Nirvana and, and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and the grunge scene in the early 90s. And that was right at the moment that I was coming of age. Uh, I was also a very shy kid, um, pretty introverted. And I had a few very close friends, but 
terrified of girls, even though I was becoming obsessed with them, of course. <laughs> uh, yeah, just, you know, not even able to really hold a conversation with a, with a girl up until a certain age. Um, fortunately, by the time I finished high school, I did have my first girlfriend and that opened me up a lot and made me more comfortable with the opposite sex. And, uh, lost my virginity probably around seven, 16, 17, 17, I think. Um, very healthy, super healthy. Th- that sounds right, right, about right, I guess. But you know, I uh, I, I wasn't really drinking or, or smoking or anything at that point. I think I got drunk maybe twice when I was a teenager. Um, and then the band, though, was my life. I mean, that was my whole focus. We were we started the band in '94. Uh, we got signed to our first record deal in '96. So by the time I was 19, I was signed to a major record label. Uh, had a girlfriend, was going on tour in 97 and putting out a record. And uh, I was very innocent, really, at that point still. We went out on, on tour and there was not much partying going on. I was what you would call straight edge. Um, <laughs> we love a straight but, edge. <laughs> but looking back, though, it was like extremes. Even then, it's like yeah. it's all or nothing. And at that point, it was nothing, right? Because yeah. it was... It was that was shameful. Like the idea of 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 being um, somebody who fell victim to drugs and alcohol was a shameful thing, and I was terrified of, of that idea. Um, when I hit my early twenties, I realized that I had kind of a stick up my butt about all that. <laughs> that I was, you know, acting from a from a place of fear, and I took a, a decidedly uh, opposite approach to just kind of being open to social situations and drinking socially and um, trying to just have a, a, a good time, um, which at that point, again, looked relatively healthy. It just looked like the college experience of going out on weekends and partying with my friends and um, dating more. And um, But then I guess it crept up on me. You know, the drinking crept up, crept up over a matter of time. It wasn't really problematic even when I was on tour with the band in 2002, three, um, promoting songs about Jane. I mean, we would go out and tie one on when we had a night off and I definitely probably was drinking to excess at that point. It wasn't really interfering in ways that it would later in my life. Um, the turn for me when, when alcohol became a problem was when I was dealing with the breakdown of my body and my mind, uh, in the course of touring and having this just overwhelming, relentless, um, over time inability to perform really. Mm-hmm. And, and drinking became, became my coping mechanism at that point, whereas it had been a way to facilitate good times or take good times and make them better. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was now a way to escape pain, physical and emotional pain. And that's when it took a turn because the relationship with it became um, more habitual, more negative, um, and more toxic. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting that you kind of like use the word obsession a couple of times and I definitely, Did I? Relate. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, <laughs> I, as a fellow addict alcoholic, I definitely relate to this idea of like, I think, and I, it's funny. I too was like very, I don't know, like very quote unquote good until I was about like 18. And that's when discovered music and and drugs and it was like that whole like at last I had arrived and finally I felt like comfortable enough in my skin as a result of drugs to kind of be in be in what 
felt like like the stream of life, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then that that window swiftly closed and it's like, um, but this idea of like prior to that the level of obsession, right, like with music or with like you know, for me boys, this like knowing that once the the crosshairs are fixed on something, it's very difficult to, to, to move them. And then therefore, like, perhaps it was like a wise, in fact, uh, uh, caution around drugs and alcohol until you're like, well, I'll get over it. It'll be fine. And then of course it's like, it's, a, it's fine for a minute. <laughs> like right. I could pretend it's okay for a sec, but yeah, that, um, that, that obsession really tra- transfers quick, you know? Um, and uh, and I definitely like, it sounds incredibly, you know, emotionally devastating to, to have your body break down in the midst of all this success of what you've been essentially working your whole life for. Like, I mean, you know, I think it can be very easy to, um, to think about like in often in recovery, we call it like character defects or shortcomings, but I think a lot of the time it's like, this is the most creative way we could possibly like deal with the situation. Like this is doing the best with the tools that we had that just weren't very good, you know? Yeah. Um, so how did you kind of, like, how did you eventually get sober? So when I left the band, I fell into a deep depression, the worst that I had ever experienced. Had you experienced um, it before? Like had that been part of your mental health journey? Yeah, but I didn't really know that that's what it was. Um, As a teenager, I definitely went to a dark place and I definitely experienced anxiety, but I didn't I didn't refer to it as anxiety. I just felt very separate from my surroundings. I felt very self-conscious and I was very introspective and and perhaps obsessed (laughs) as the word of the day um, with just the kind of even imagery of darkness uh, in the music that I was listening to and the movies I was watching. And I just was going to a very dark place. And I think it was a, a disillusionment that happened um, mm-hmm. for, you know, the kind of innocence of youth it hit that, that age of adolescence where um, I suppose the, the brooding teenage boy is a pretty common, uh, you know, <laughs> pattern. But uh, for me, it, it was, it was profound. And I, I, looking back now, it definitely was anxiety and depression. It just wasn't to the level that it was clinical or that I, um, you know, it affected everything fell apart. It was um, just a part of my growing up that I had never really dealt with though, you know? Yeah. So it was, it was kind of when everything did break down on the road, it was all of that reaching a fever pitch. It was everything that I hadn't dealt with and really the essential sort of um, character defect that I, that I dealt with was the extent to which I was really buttoned up and put a lot of pressure on myself um, expecting perfection of myself in, in the early days, it was in being the good kid, you know, doing everything right. Everything that my parents wanted me to do, doing well in school and not getting in trouble and being the responsible one. And, and then it became pressure on myself to perform at a high level when it came to first sports and then music. And then now you add to it, the pressure, the external pressure of it is at the highest level. And there are those expectations of you being the best of the best and showing up to every gig and every interview and every, you know, video shoot or whatever, and being uh, stellar, you know, being epically uh, able to perform in a really, um, a really excellent way. So, you know, that all came to a fever pitch, like I said, when I was on the road promoting songs about Jane for year two, year three, 
by year four, I was just completely burnt out and I was falling apart physically and mentally and emotionally and really came to a point where I was spiritually breaking down. Like I just, my, I had, was losing hope that this was going to all work mm-hmm. out. I was, I didn't have faith in my own abilities. I didn't have faith that, that there was going to be a way to turn this around. Um, so that really, you know, hit a bottom when I left the band and it all kind of came crashing down for me. All of the, whatever um, self-esteem that I had, confidence, belief in myself was gone. And I, I just kind of had this, I, I fell into this very nihilistic way of thinking because the things that I cared so passionately about had hurt me so much that I kind of, as a defense mechanism, had to believe that nothing mattered at all. Yeah. I mean, it also sounds like kind of an identity crisis. If like the whole, the whole thing is built on like excellence achievement and especially in this one specific area that you could no longer kind of function in <laughs> plus, you know, the uh, building a life around music and then being like, this is, this is unsustainable and impossible. Then what, like how, what, <laughs> it seems like everything is dust, you know, that's a, such a hard place to be. Yeah, it was definitely that more than anything else was an identity crisis. Everything that had been uh, my self-definition was gone. And so who am I now and how do I fill that void? You know, every alcoholic talks about a void that they're trying to fill uh, with their substance, right? And for me, that was it. I'd lost that that identity and there was a void there. So it's funny you used the word grief earlier, talking about putting something out into the world. I look at that process, you know, the question was, how did I get sober? I took a right turn. Sorry. Go for it. Long form um, <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Go walking. <laughs> I, I really look at it as a grieving process. It was, it was a decade of grieving the loss of that identity and going through all the stages, you know, denial at first, this isn't happening, bargaining, like, well, maybe if I had done this different, or maybe if I do this now or whatever it was that was going to, you know, keep me from just the acceptance of what, uh, had actually occurred and what I had to move on from. Right. It was a grieving process and that took about a decade. And I finally got sober at a time when I was achieving acceptance, I think, of the loss that I had experienced. And it's funny that acceptance is the end stage of grief, but it's the beginning stage of recovery. From yeah. addiction, right? Wow. I never put that to- together, but I do definitely like that definitely makes sense. Yeah. So it's like you're you're finally able to have closure on something that was painful and begin this new journey that is more hopeful and looking forward uh, rather than backwards. So that was what allowed me to finally kind of sit with the idea that um, I was I was wallowing. You know, the the addiction was a part of wallowing in the sadness of what I had lost. And it was when I finally hit that place where I didn't want to live that way anymore. I wanted to be a part of the world again. I wanted to live life and look forward to what was possible rather than what I had lost. So, you know, I just, I, I checked into rehab. In was there a specific moment that like kind of, that crystallized that for you? Like where you can, can remember kind of waking, like waking up to a new desire of like actually wanting to like be part of life? Yeah. Yeah. It was a series of really humbling things that happened over a few months at the end of my drinking Um, when I reached that stage when, you know, I had had this illusion of control over my drinking for a long time, which I talk about in my book, Harder to Breathe. There's a chapter called The Illusion of Control, um, (laughs) which we all can. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, but you know, that's, that was the thing that kept me in, in my addiction for a long time was the belief that I had control over it, which was just an illusion. Uh, it got worse over time until finally in the last period of my drinking, uh, I, I finally had to admit that I really had no control, uh, because I would have every intention of not drinking. And then somehow I would end up at the liquor store buying more booze and getting drunk and, and not feeling like I even had control over, over how much I was drinking and how drunk I was. And, uh, I also was, I was, I had really bad anxiety at that point. I had like pretty high level anxiety disorder and I was going to psychiatrists and therapists and going through the whole rigmarole of that. Uh, and I was on medication, including benzodiazepines, which, uh, do not combine with alcohol. alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I was in this weird sort of really up and down state of you know, trying not to drink and taking the pills and then not wanting to be dependent on the pills and then stopping and then drinking and then drinking to excess and just this horrible cycle where I was becoming paranoid. I was like, there were times when I would hide in my bathroom when like the UPS guy was walking up the driveway because I was just terrified of seeing another human being or like my, I felt like my cats were looking at me funny because, and they probably were, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> And what's wrong with them? So it was stuff like that. And then there was just one night when I, I intended not to drink. And I was I went to my little studio where I'd been recording and I was going to come home for dinner. And I didn't show up for dinner. And my girlfriend was wondering where the hell I was. And I woke up at my desk in front of my computer in the, in the studio um, and looked up and saw that at the time. And it was like two hours after I was supposed to be home. I had passed out. And there were a ton of calls and texts from her and she was really worried. And I just, I had no more defenses at that point. I was exhausted. I was really humbled by that and felt embarrassed and just realizing how dangerous it was to just going out into the world in that state. And, um, and she, for the first time was just like, you know, I'm, I don't know what it's going to mean for you and for our relationship. If you get well, um, but I, I just, I can't see you doing this to yourself anymore. And I think you need help. And, and I, I don't know if I was, I guess I was already ready. You know, it was, I just needed to hear her say that probably. How long um, have the relationship been? Like how long have you guys been dating? It was a long-term relationship that um, had been through the mill with everything I had gone through. Cause we met when I was still in college. Um, and when we, before we made songs about Jane um, and you know, she <laughs> stuck with me through all those years. We broke up several times. It was really dramatic. You know, I was on the road for four years of my life and we did the long distance relationship thing and we broke up and we got back together. And then I came back home and I had left the band. I was going through depression and addiction. And then we broke up again and we were separate for like a year and a half at one point. And then we got back together. So it was, a you know, a complicated history to yeah. say the least. Uh, and we, we, I think together we're under the illusion that we were moving on and doing better and kind of settling into a more normal life. Uh, but then, but then the drinking crept up on me and it became a real problem again. And so, uh, you know, we just kind of both had to face reality, which was that this isn't normal. This is a problem. And when she finally said that to me, it was kind of the kick in the ass that I needed. And um, we called up my therapist who had been kind of, dipping my toe in the water of recovery with for some time, <laughs> you 
yeah. the secret messages. <laughs> like, what have you tried a meeting? <laughs> <laughs> and he recommended uh, uh, Betty Ford Center out in, in uh, Rancho Mirage, California. And, um, and Sean, my girlfriend, drove me out there on Memorial Day of uh, 2016. And easy a suburb date to remember. Yeah. <laughs> Memorial Day. And, uh, and I checked myself in and started that journey, which was terrifying at first, uh, but pretty quickly became inspiring. Oh, that's, I'm so happy that we have you on this side. Um, <laughs> and I wonder, like, uh, how did recovery kind of change that relationship? And then I don't know if that's your present partner, but how did that, um, yeah, how did that shift the dynamics of your relationship? Like, I think not a lot of us are in a long-term relationship when we get sober and then kind of stay in it because it's, it dysregulates so much. So I wonder kind of how you rode that wave kind of post rehab. Yeah, it was really uh, interesting. I didn't realize until I had been in recovery for a while, how often um, couples or even married couples who had been together for decades, when one of them has an addiction and finally gets sober um, that can often lead to the dissolution of the marriage because one element of that system has changed and, and is growing. So, you know, rapidly growing. So that can, that can often lead uh, a couple to grow apart or split up. Um, and so I didn't realize that that was such a tenuous situation. Uh, I think she, she did, she recognized that she knew that there was going to be a lot of change and she didn't know what it would mean for her. Mm -hmm. And she asked me some questions early on when I was still in rehab, like, what is this going to mean for me? And I, I, I was very cavalier about it. I was like, this doesn't mean anything for you. You know, I'm just, <laughs> you're I'm not in rehab. <laughs> I love alcoholics so much. <laughs> We're like, what do you mean, you? <laughs> right, right. This is, this is my time. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to Family Weekend. <laughs> right, right, right. So, but it, I, they were very important and very valid questions. She was like, you know, um, am I, am I going to have to quit drinking completely too? Can I not have it at all ever? Or is it okay around you every now? And I asked her, I said, look, I can't tell you what to do. I can just tell you what's not going to work for me. Um, you know, having drink, drinking in the house, um, you know, having alcohol in the house, having um, someone drinking to excess in front of me on a regular basis you know, wouldn't be something that I could deal with. It's good. That would be too confusing for me. Yeah. Um, and she, of course, understood that. And that w it wasn't hard for her to, to do that. And, and she was like, well, what's the timeline? I mean, like, does it mean like no alcohol for six months, for a year or what's, and I said, I can't, again, yeah. I can't tell you what to do. I can just, let's, let's start with no alcohol in the house for six months. Let's start with that. And that's, that, that probably would be healthy for me um, to have that distance from it. She had no problem with that. And she, um, as far as I know, didn't drink at all during those six months. I don't know. I wasn't around her when she was out doing other things. But um, but as far as I could tell, uh, her life shifted pretty dramatically, too, in that regard. And, and you it guys, was, were you drinking a lot together or was that kind of like she was kind of watching you <laughs> disintegrate or you were doing that like by yourself? Yeah, no, I mean, I was definitely drinking a lot more than her. <laughs> I was the one with, with a real problem, uh, and it was the one that was definitely wrapped up in the obsession and the compulsion of it. Uh, but, you know, our lifestyle was definitely unhealthy. I mean, we, we together, I think, had, had that illusion that because I had lived the life that I had lived in the band and we were relatively comfortable because of it financially, we didn't have a lot of the responsibilities that would keep you 
in check in terms of lifestyle, um, we justified our slightly decadent lifestyle by like saying, well, if anyone, you know, could live this life, uh, they would, you know. And so we would take a, a trip to Europe and drink a ton of wine and, you know, do tours of the vineyards and stuff. And like, that's a good way to think of like, oh, this isn't alcoholism. It's just uh, we're being classy. <laughs> yeah, we're exploring the world. What are you talking about? We love the finer things. <laughs> the finer things. It's like, oh, yeah, I can taste the difference between this vineyard's uh, red wine and this one. You know, it's like, <laughs> you're like, I would drink fucking cough syrup. Are you kidding? <laughs> exactly. It's like, it's like, well, you're supposed to drink this when you have steak and this when you have, and it's like at the end of the night, it's like, well, you've had eight different kinds of wine. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. Long story short, um, we felt like we were, were healthy and we probably weren't. I was definitely the one that was that was getting uh, more and more unhealthy in that. But it was a shift for her, too. You know, she definitely recognized that her lifestyle had to change to, to meet mine. Otherwise, there was going to be an issue. And um, and at first. Uh, it was it was a little tough, but I think that I was surprised at what at the, the effect that it had on her, because um, I came out of rehab and I had that glow. You know, I had had the spiritual awakening. I was for the first time in a long time, you know, rejoining the flow of life and feeling all of the, you know, the pink cloud that comes with that. I love the pink cloud. (laughs) Yeah. And I remember her when I came home, maybe a week or two after I'd been home, um, we were having a conversation and I was like doing the thing that most people do right out of rehab, just like going on and on and on about recovery and how amazing it is. And, and she, uh, and she started to get teary. And I was like, oh no, what's what's going on? Is this there's something about this bothering you? And she her response was interesting. I didn't expect it. She said, No, I'm just I'm so happy for you. And it's amazing to see you. You have this glow. You seem like 10 years younger. Um, and I'm envious. Mm-hmm. I'm jealous of that. Like I don't I don't know how to create that for myself. I want what you have. And I don't know how I would do that exactly. I don't identify as an alcoholic. Like I stopped drinking and it wasn't a problem for me. And I I would feel dishonest going to AA meetings. I said, well, you can come to my meetings with me. And she's like, no, 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 that's, that's your journey. I don't want to interfere with that. But I just, I want to find something like that for me. And so it was, it was an interesting thing because it seemed like the, the energy and the enthusiasm of my spiritual awakening had was kind of, um, you know, it, she was picking up on it and feeling that that motivation and inspiration too, and uh, it eventually led to both of us going back to school. Oh and, wow! Uh, getting master's de- degrees, I went to Pepperdine and got a, a, a degree in uh, clinical psychology to become a therapist. She got her uh, master's in social work at USC, which is something she had wanted to do right out of college, but had put on the back burner because her her dad was dying at the time. Um, and she was taking care of him. So it, it I guess, long that's story. actually so awesome. Like, because that's not usually, usually you're like, and then we kind of grew apart because we were on different spiritual paths or like, and then she went to Al-Anon, <laughs> but not like we both went back to school and became like <laughs> secondary degree holders. That's fantastic. Well, it was, yeah. I mean, I was so inspired and I was doing things for my recovery that were just, as I said earlier, the next indicated action. You know, I was volunteering. I was sponsoring people. Um, and then that led me back to school to become a therapist. And when I told her I wanted to do that, she was like, I want to go back to school too. And so it was clear that like she was picking up, up off of uh, everything that was going on in my life and, and all that was inspiring me. Um, 
And she, she just got on board. She kind of was like, I want to do the same kind of stuff. And I want to, um, at this point in our lives, in our forties, you know, be of service and do something that has, um, you know, the element of giving of myself in a helpful way. That's so beautiful. Like, cause it can, I think again, you can see the different kind of paths that could have taken. And it sounds like it took such a like generous one, which is really nice to hear. Um, and I wonder, like, you mentioned kind of starting to sponsor people and being of service and, and volunteering. And I wonder kind of like what made you want to become a therapist? Like what was that feeling? And then also like, what do you think makes you a good therapist? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll be honest, you know, there were a lot of altruistic reasons why I wanted to do that and to help people and be of service was, you know, a big part of my recovery, but it also was a little bit of ego. And I'll tell you why, um, you know, being, as I described earlier, you know, so low uh, and having lost my identity, my self-esteem, um, my confidence, when I was in recovery and volunteering and there were things that I was discovering that were talents that I either didn't realize I had um, or that were newly forming or things that I had forgotten about because, you know, my identity had been so wrapped up in being the drummer in Maroon 5 but I forgot I had other skills and that I was a smart guy and that if I applied myself to things, I usually um, excelled. So to be volunteering at a recovery center and having people giving me positive feedback, saying like you, you articulate ideas of recovery in a really clear way. When you tell your story, I can really relate to it. And you really seem to have uh, an ability to be uh, empathic with, with the clientele, you know, and sit with people and really listen to them and give them feedback uh, that's helpful. That all was the first time in a long time that I felt like, oh my God, I have these things to offer. Uh, and it was building up my confidence again and my self-esteem. And it just felt like if I have things to offer and I have things that make me feel good about myself and they can help other people, then it would be silly for me not to pursue that because it makes me feel good. It's that age old question. Is there, and is there really such a thing as a totally selfless act? Yeah. You know, it makes you feel good about yourself. And it's like, it doesn't matter if you're doing something good. The, the, the reason doesn't really matter. And if it makes you feel good, great. So it, it was both. It was, it was wanting to be of service, but it was also wanting to do something purposeful for me. Um, and, and going back to school and becoming a therapist and telling my story with this book. Uh, those were both ways to be um, of service in a way that felt good for me. Yeah. And I mean, I think it kind of cast in that water in terms of who you're able to reach with, with a message of recovery, you know? Right. And, and I don't, it's, it's hearing you really made me think about like this idea of the 12th step, right? This idea of having, like having had a spiritual experience as the result of this work, like it's, it's that which makes us carry the message to others, right? It's not like, Carrying the message, I think, makes that feeling kind of more pronounced, but it's like you have good news to share, you know, that like we do recover, it's possible. And I think that it sounds like your your work as a therapist kind of is, is very much about that, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that was in that question, too. What makes me a good therapist? Uh, I think that my life experience um, overall, but in particular with addiction and recovery um, and recovering myself from anxiety and depression uh, those are the things that inform the work that I do as much or more than the education that I received, um, you know, the formal education, because, you know, I, I was in school with a lot of kids that were just out of undergrad, you know, going and getting their master's and, you know, really smart kids that, that obviously had a, a great future in the field they were going into. 
But I did feel like I had something different to offer because I was a little older and because I had lived a lot of this stuff. And so when I talk to my clients, I probably self-disclose more than a lot of therapists. Uh, that's not something you're supposed to do, you know, too often. But I, I often find that I have stories to share that are directly applicable to what they're going through. Um, and then I just have all this, the, these either anecdotes or just personal experience and things that I learned in my journey that are helpful to to give a framework and context to what we're talking about. So, yeah, I mean, that's definitely um, that. And just what I described earlier, you know, the ability to sort of art articulate things in a helpful way and, uh, and reflect back in an empathic way. And that's, I, li I like that you kind of talk about your personal approach because I do, it says, does sound very <laughs> kind of recovery oriented, this idea of like, I have experience, let me share it with you. <laughs> and I wonder, like, as I, especially during pandemic, I was definitely reconsidering like a career in music and, and starting to consider retraining as a, as a therapist. <laughs> Cause I mean, I think being in recovery makes us really good at kind of sitting and holding space for other people's feelings. But I do wonder like, what, uh, how do you separate kind of your profession from like taking people through the steps? Like, do you, like, how do you separate, separate your, your work as a therapist from your work as a sponsor? You know, like, is there a specific, like, I will not give advice or I will not therapize my, my sponsees or I will not treat, like give kind of homework to, to my therapy clients. Like, how do you differentiate for you personally? Well, I actually stopped taking on sponsees when I started seeing clients. Uh, I felt that, um, you know, being a therapist kind of filled that role for me. And, and to be honest, being a sponsor at a certain point became a little frustrating. I felt a little limited in terms of what I could and couldn't do. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it was frustrating. There wasn't a, like a real framework in terms of exactly what a sponsor is supposed to be. Um, you know, I've heard people that have amazing experiences with sponsors and some pretty bad experiences too, you know, there's nothing really regulating it and you have to kind of seek out what it is that you're looking for and what's going to be helpful to you. And there are a lot of different kinds of sponsors out there. Um, so as in terms of advice for people looking for a sponsor, not, they're not all made the same and some of them will be very directive. Some of them will be, you know, very hands-off. Uh, some of them will be very involved. Some will be not very involved at all. Um, and, and more than anything, as a sponsor, what would frustrate me was just like, if somebody was really ready uh, to get sober and do the work, it makes your job really easy. You don't really have to do much. You just offer them the tools, right? <laughs> yeah. You just like but sit if, with them and read. Like, right. Easy. But if they're not, if they're, if they're in denial and they're not really ready to take that leap, um, it doesn't matter how much you lecture someone. <laughs> it doesn't matter how many stories you tell them about your own recovery, like, you can't make someone be ready to get sober. Uh, as a therapist, you know, you have the benefit of, at least in certain, in, in the context that I work in, that the majority of the people in my office are people that are there because they recognize they have a problem and they want help, right? Um, May I ask what therapy. kind of therapy you do specifically? Like what's your kind of focus or skill set? Well, I've been working at a clinic called the Missing Peace Center for Anxiety, which is obviously focused on anxiety. Pretty severe anxiety. I mean, it's like a, high, a pretty high needs clientele in terms of um, uh, people that either have been inpatient um, or are trying not to go inpatient um, or just people are going through a really particularly tough time in their life, you know, transitions or trauma is coming up and they're just 
they've lost the ability to really function because of um, panic attacks or uh, you know deep depression and um, so it's a it's it, it centered around anxiety but a lot of different elements come into it in terms of the, the things that cause the anxiety right uh, so I'm getting an education working with a lot of different kinds of clients and um, it's a little bit different than just working in a private practice where you might just have people that are in there for you know like they're having a work-life balance issues or uh, relatively mild mental health issues. Um, but that's beautiful that you, you it, having had experience with that, you know, in, in a pretty severe way that you can really offer your specific like fittedness to the role. Yeah, it's stuff that I can relate to, and um, and you and everything comes up too. It's not it's not specific to addiction, but of course, when you have people that are trying to cope with really intense feelings, there's going to be substance use involved in there somewhere. And to be able to bring my background into that, to recognize like when somebody's clearly using as a coping mechanism and it's, it's problematic, um, maybe a lot of therapists wouldn't have the, you know, specific skill set to be able to pinpoint that and to give, uh, you know, the client the kind of feedback that is necessary to nip it in the bud in some cases, you know, somebody who was like me had a relatively normal and healthy relationship with a substance. And then all of a sudden they're in a crisis mm-hmm. and their and their drinking goes way up or their, or their smoking pot or whatever uh, goes way up. And, you know, as a, as a recovering addict, I can see that and I can see like, okay, this person needs an intervention right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I mean, the spidey sense of the alcoholic is unparalleled. <laughs> right. Like, right, exactly. oh, it's happening. It's on. Like, that's, right, that's right. a beautiful moment. Um, that's so, that, that's really, really cool. Like, I, I thank you for kind of disclosing that because it's, it sounds like it's a really kind of perfect uh, fit. Um, and I do wonder, like, and this is not one of the prescribed questions, so apologies if I'm kind of going off track, but like, how, like, how do you recommend clients or how do you manage your own anxiety and depression today? Like, what does that look like for you as a man in in recovery? Uh, Well, my anxiety and depression um, improved by leaps and bounds just by getting sober. (laughs) I think, you know, I I had thought, you know, and this is also part of the illusion of control or part of the just rationalization that goes on when you're in addiction. I, I always told myself that my my anxiety was the real problem and that alcohol was just a, a symptom of it. It was mm-hmm. something I was doing. Self-medication. To to... And... Right, exactly. And, and then when I got sober, I realized that my anxiety and depression more or less went away <laughs> because I wasn't doing that to myself anymore. It was, I didn't realize to, to what extent it was causing or at least exacerbating the anxiety so profoundly. Um, so, I mean, also, it's hard to tell. Was it just removing the substance that, that made it so much better? Or was it all the work that I was doing in recovery? It was a combination of both of those things. Sure. That, that, And I was forced out into the world a lot, you know, just being in meetings and, and telling my story in groups and volunteering at the, at the recovery center. Uh, a lot of the things that I had been fearful of and that I had built up in my mind being so isolated um, were not so scary anymore because I was being exposed to them on a daily and weekly basis. And it was... And it was helpful. It wasn't terrifying anymore. Yeah. And in uh, such like an, a safe and nurturing environment, I think. Yeah, exactly. So, so it was really the best way to be sort of released into the wild. Again, you know? <laughs> uh, 
Uh, like a but, feral cat. <laughs> right, right. I, you know, I, I do have anxiety still. You know, I do experience that. Um, I don't know if it's more or less than the average person. Uh, I think I may be predisposed to it. And I do have a dark side. You know, I, that's the other thing I've had to come to grips with. It's like anxiety doesn't go away entirely when you're in recovery. Um, you know, having a depressive side doesn't ever completely go away. I, th- I think it's unrealistic to think that you become happy in a way that you're just joyous 24-7 for the rest of your life. Um, that's why we refer to serenity or contentment mm-hmm. more than happiness, I think. Yeah, because, for sure. You know, happiness is a fleeting emotion. It's not a, a sustainable state. Uh, but what I, I think for me, it's really about balance. Balance is the answer to like most issues that I deal with. And if I feel particularly anxious about one thing in, in life, um, I try to balance that with, you know, just walking forward into it and, and uh, ex- letting myself experience it, sit with it. And with the, the knowledge that this too shall pass, especially if I allow myself to walk through it as opposed to running from it or escaping it in some way. And then balance. <laughs> your answer is like feeling your feelings, which is like the number yeah. one like conundrum for, for people in recovery. We're like, oh God, anything but that. <laughs> That's a tough one. Yeah. To having to learn to feel your feelings if you've never felt your feelings before is a, is a tough one. But yeah, that's what I try to do. I try to sit with it and, uh, and recognize that I have a dark side that, that, you know, shows its head and I might have a, uh, a, a down day or, or whatever. Um, but again, that will pass. And especially if I pick myself up and just think, um, that's a part of me, but so is the light. And I prefer the light and I prefer to walk into that space when possible and try to, um, grab onto the inspiration and the motivation of growth and recovery. That's beautiful. Um, and I know that you also like part of your journey is dealing with nerve pain. And I wonder kind of like, have you had to deal with any of that in recovery? Like, have you had to do any, I don't know, like deal with physical pain? Cause I know I have a couple sponsees and I have a couple dear friends who are in a position in recovery where they're in a lot of pain. And it's like, that's not been my experience, but I wonder kind of what, how one navigates that, you know? Well, I dealt with chronic pain for a while. Um, it's almost hard to relate to that point in my life now. Um, fortunately, I, I haven't experienced chronic pain in a long time. I do have pain from time to time when I overdo things. Um, but my relationship with my nervous system is evolving still at this point. And that's kind of, I think, the big still, uh, the one area of my recovery I haven't fully tackled and I'm still dealing with is just my relationship to uh, the drums and performing and, and my nervous system and how it relates to that, because I'm seeing more and more that what happened breaking down on the road over time was a sustained trauma, really. Mm-hmm. And I had a hard time, you know, relating to it as that for a long time, because I, I felt bad thinking of it as that when people are suffering through things like having been in a war zone um, or childhood, you know, physical abuse or, you know, things that I considered real trauma as opposed to, you know, uh, I get to do what I love and it hurts me, which I think is actually like hearing that is actually a really, really painful concept. It is. And it was confusing too, because this is the thing I'm supposed to love more than anything and find so much joy. And then over time it was becoming more and more difficult and painful and breaking me down and breaking down my confidence. And, and then it really gave me the ultimate, the biggest heartbreak in my life. And I, 
I'm able to relate to it now that my nervous system really kind of said to me, you know, you're done with this. This is killing you. I'm not going to let you do this anymore. And that's where some of the nerve dis dysfunction came from. And it's weird because I feel like I've regained my nervous, my control of my nervous system in, in most ways. Um, I go out and I play softball every Sunday morning and I'm playing as well as I have since I was a kid and I'm in great shape and I feel athletic. Uh, but when I sit at the drums and, and certain motions and things still feel really um, contorted and difficult and, and spastic. And it's, it, I've had to realize like, it's kind of what we call like a dystonia, like musician's dystonia, which is a, something that it comes from the mind and the nervous system, basically um, having a block, you know, mm. Uh, that's preventing you from doing something you've done a million times because it has become painful. Uh, and you see it in athletes. Sometimes you see it in, in performers. Um, I haven't really found my way through that hundred percent. And it's frustrating because I, I feel in my mind, like I should be able to play the drums yeah. the way that I used to. And it often doesn't turn out that way. And then I do play it to the point, trying to work through it yeah. where it becomes painful and I have to really contort myself to try to do it. And so that's a journey for me that I'm still working through. It's not the number one priority for me because I have a lot of other really positive things going on in my life, but it's something I have to deal with. And I have to remind myself not to allow it to affect me to the degree that it did at one point in my life, to have patience with myself and to recognize, you know, if this is one area that I'm, I'm not going to excel, that's okay. You know, I, I don't have to be perfect. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's so interesting. Like, as you say that, like something kind of like, it's, it's, I don't know, maybe, <laughs> maybe it's because I've only had one cup of coffee today, which is a small miracle. But this idea of like, wait, I actually feel like I'm able to be like emotionally present with you while you're talking, <laughs> which is really nice. Um, but like, as you kind of talk about kind of like befriending your nervous system, essentially, like being able to kind of be in your body and, and, and be okay with like not having this thing perfect yet, you know, I think. It's, it feels like something snaps into place, but maybe the grieving's not over, you know, because it sounds like a, yeah, like a, maybe one of the best things that ever happened to you, having that your course of your life change in that's such a dramatic way, but also like, yeah, I, especially in such an uncertain, um, an uncertain moment in the music industry, I think a lot of us are having that a similar feeling of like, is this a sustainable thing like for different reasons you know but the the, the real a, a real moment of reconciliation with like I I thought I wanted this like more than anything but should it feel this way right um and so I, I think that like I don't know it's 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 even though your your circumstances are very specific it sounds like they might be very um uh they might resonate with a lot of our listeners <laughs> Because we have an inordinate amount of DJs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope so. You know, that was, that was you know, the reason why I wrote my book, Harder to Breathe, the way that I did. Um, it, I, very few people probably can relate to the idea of, uh, you know, going on the road and, and selling 20 million albums. <laughs> so it's not, it's not a book for people who have gone through specifically what I went through. Um, it's for everyone who can relate to the feelings. Yeah. You know? And the challenges and the pressure, the anxiety, uh, you know, the, the obsessive thoughts, the compulsive behaviors, the addiction, you know, all the things that are very common 
that I experienced and that I was able to overcome in a lot of ways and find a new chapter in my life. Uh, that's the, the purpose for, t for writing the book now and telling my story. And I do hope that whether somebody's in music or they're an athlete or they're, you know, working in, a, in, a, in an office, um, you know, it doesn't matter if you, if you see yourself in my specific journey uh, that they, people can relate to the feelings and, and, and the challenges and see some hope in the recovery that I've found. That's a beautiful, beautiful note to end on. And um, as far as sober sex, we sometimes uh, discuss this idea of like a sex ideal of who we want to show up as in our, our romantic or sexual relationships and for who we want to grow towards showing up as. Are, are mm -hmm. you working with a sex ideal today? I would say that I am. I think my, my relationship with, with sex has kind of come full circle to a place where I just want to be as present as possible you know, the most important thing is to feel, and I, you know, I'm not saying you have to be in a committed relationship with your one true love in order to have good sex. I'm just saying, you know, to be fully present with another human being, to feel connected in a tangible way, um, and not have anything, you know, really getting in the way of that or having to distract yourself in any way or treat it as, um, another escape or, um, self-medication, you know, to just really be able to sit in a moment with somebody uh, and be fully present and enjoy the feeling of that. That's kind of the ideal for me of what, what sex, uh, what I want it to be. For That's me. awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for your vulnerability. Um, it was a real pleasure getting to know you and I hope the rest of your day is awesome. <laughs> thank you. You too. This was really, really great. Mental health, sexuality, gender identity.